All right, so while Pastor Mark is out, I have the duty of carrying on with our series, which um, our series this summer is what? Prayer? Oh, no. Prepared the wrong lesson. No, I'm joking. It's, it's a, no, you're right, it's prayer. <clears throat> I've, um, I've been saved for about 25 years, and, um, and I just want to encourage you guys as, as, as we go through this series this summer. I know that on your, on your Christian walk, sometimes you get to plateaus, and sometimes you have these little dips and things like that. Sometimes you cover topics that you like, okay, I've covered that one, I know that one. And I've been there. I am there a lot of times. And sometimes it takes a, something to just kind of punch you in the face, figuratively, and, um, and kind of wake you up. And, I, and this series is kind of doing that for me. And, and I pray that it's doing that for you as well. I pray that as, as we talk about prayer this summer, that it's not just you guys listening to truths about prayer or perspectives about prayer or realities about prayer. But I pray that it actually penetrates your prayer life. It's waking me up to taking a, 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 more, a more serious and a more aggressive posture toward prayer, trying to get more disciplined um, in my prayer, more intentional, more strategic, both in my personal prayer and praying with one another. So I want to challenge you as we go through this series, as we continue through the summer, that you don't hear it with just, oh, that's interesting information, but, but deal with it and let it impact your prayer life. Change your prayer life as you listen to it. And, and that's a blanket, generalized statement that could sound judgmental. I don't know your prayer life. So some of you might have very strong prayer lives. That's, that, that's great. Still, let it challenge you and direct you in how you can even grow that more. When I was a high school teacher, I taught Bible. And, um, and when, I, when I first started teaching, my wife warned me about prayer time. Um, I, I, I didn't get saved till I was 17. I went to public school, so I didn't know what this thing was about praying in class. And the administration wanted us to pray before every class, all the teachers to pray before every class, much more so the Bible teacher, right? It makes sense. And, um, and, and Kristen was kind of like, this, you have trouble there. Well, I, I guess I didn't take that to heart because my first year, I got steamrolled during prayer time. Um, if any of you grew up, grew up going to a, a, a Christian school and, or, or have experience in, in a Christian high school, you probably have already experienced this kind of thing. But prayer time in a Christian school can be a very abusive thing. So I had to come up with rules. This is not a time for gossip. You ever hear that happen during prayer time? Hey, kids, we have some prayer requests. Anyone have any? Hey, Mr. Garrett, Mr. Garrett. You, you don't know what so-and-so did the other day. She's got problems. we got to pray for her. I'm like, oh, no. That's not the way prayer time is supposed to work. Or prayer time is not a, to- a time for backhanded compliments or, or secretive insults. Like uh, I, I, I often had someone sit in one row and pray for someone in the other row about how <clears throat> that, he can't pass a class. Uh, we got to pray for him. I'm like, really? You're going to use prayer time for that? Okay. Or drama. I, I remember I've had some class periods, but probably over half my class period was wasted with some of these uh, prayer abuses. So I know that prayer can be an abusive thing as well. My topic specifically today is prayers of thanksgiving. To even narrow it down further, I've chosen to talk about contentment that leads to thankful prayer. So, if you'll allow me. I'll pray. 
before we talk about prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for being able to come together and, and meet in a comfortable room and encourage one another, consider your word, spur one another on to good works, uh, love one another. I pray that you would be with me as I try and approach this topic. I pray, pray I approach it in a meaningful way, a helpful way. I pray that your spirit would hide destructive thoughts, make clear truth, and continue thoughts that are unfinished in the hearts and minds of all the people here. Be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that life is hard. We have dreams for ourselves, for our families. It seems that our plans are always being altered at best or outright eliminated. Sickness, loss, hunger, inconvenience, fatigue are all part of our lives in varying degrees. A recent song called Drifter by a band called Mike Main and the Branches begins with these words. He says, If you're calling me a drifter, I'd say you're probably right. Just trying to get to where I'm going, even if I don't know where that is. That resonates with me. I don't know if that resonates with you, but sometimes I feel like I'm spinning my wheels trying to go somewhere where I don't know. But I want to get there. Anyone ever feel that way sometimes? Maybe kind of like I remember when I was body surfing in the Atlantic Ocean once a long, long time ago. A long time ago. And, um, and, and a wave broke on me unexpectedly early, and I got shoved down deep into the, into the waters. And so immediately I did the instinct that any of us would do. I started swimming as hard as I could to the surface, when suddenly <clears throat> I hit the bottom. I swam in the wrong direction. <laughs> so luckily, I w- it wasn't so deep that I wasn't able to kick, f- kick from the ground and get to the top and, and breathe again. But sometimes life feels that way, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like I'm in trouble, I'm struggling to get out of trouble, and you find out that you're just struggling in the wrong direction. And you hit the bottom and you realize, okay, okay, I hope I live through this one. Life is like that. When things don't go the way I think they should, then I cringe when I read verses like Ephesians 5.20 that says, always, I have to emphasize that word because it's in there, Always give thanks to God the Father for everything. I cringe. I cringe. I'm honest with you. I'll be honest with you. I cringe when I think of life. Always give thanks for everything. Tell you what, I could come up with a really long list of things that I don't feel like giving thanks for. In addition to this command, Paul also tells us in Philippians 4 that if we want to find peace... We must first assume a posture of thankfulness. In the light of life being difficult, I've chosen to address this command to give thanks in all things. I could have chosen to exegete Philippians 4 to consider how the peaceful effects of thankful prayer guard our hearts, but I feel like we have a greater obstacle to finding ways to be thankful or finding ways to be content. Therefore, I'm going to be borrowing from John MacArthur and looking at five aspects of finding contentment. If we can learn to find contentment, I believe that thankful prayers would be a natural flow from that. But I found contentment, really. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6. 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We found contentment, right? Take your life, strip everything away to that. Food and clothing. What do you have? Food and clothing. Anything in your life that's not food and clothing, take it out of your mind, be content with that. Really. I don't want to be judgmental. I know I have a problem with that. I know that if I found myself in a situation where food and clothing were all that I had, thankfulness would not be a large part of my prayer life. Give me this. Help me with this. Bless me with this. Bring justice on those who don't let me have more than food and clothing. But Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. The food and clothing will be content with that. So, if I'm right that developing a content heart spills over into prayers of thankfulness, we need to do business with contentment, right? So, so that's my goal today is help us do business with contentment. So I'm, I have five aspects that I believe will, can contribute to contentment that leads to thankful praying. So let's get started. Number one, we consider God's goodness. Now, I'm going to dig at each of these five because I think all five of them are going to be like dust statements. You're going to be like, well, yeah, God's good, right? We've all heard the phrase, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But do we really believe this? I mean, Jesus reinforces it. If you want to say, well, that's just a phrase that's not from the Bible, but Jesus does reinforce it. He says, no one is good except God alone. In fact, we, re- we go on and read the creation account. And where God makes everything from nothing, and he calls it good, right? Yet, in the same book, we read that God regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. In Genesis 6. So, we conclude that pre-sin creation is good, and post-sin creation is bad. Right? That's how we solve that dilemma. However, Paul does not release us from this dilemma so easily. Instead, while looking squarely into the face of the most horrible things that this world can dish out, he writes in Romans 8, all things work together for good. Fundamentally, understanding and accepting God's goodness is an issue that requires trust. I can philosophize around this issue. I can walk through logical progressions to find a resolution on how how all things work for good. And these can be helpful. In fact, I advise that you guys work these things out in your minds. However, in the daily grind of things, I find it most helpful to cling to a childlike trust that simply says God is good and choose to believe this when life throws its worst. I think it's helpful to try and work out philosophically, try and work out logically in your mind. How is it that Paul can say all things work out for good? How is it that Paul can say in everything, be thankful? Work that out. But the truth is, I believe in the moment of the, tra- of the trauma, in the moment of the conflict, in the moment of the persecution or the suffering or the pain or the confusion, it's not a logical progression that's going to bring peace. 
It's going to be a childlike trust that chooses to stubbornly say, God is good. Do you have that kind of faith? Where someone says, how's God good? I don't know. I can't explain it, but I trust it. My God is good. So, again, I challenge you, work that out philosophically. Work that out logically. But in the end, it's going to be a childlike trust that says, my God is good. I'm trusting it. Remember what Jesus says about our Heavenly Father? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? My God is good. We, can, we cannot find contentment and gratitude if we cannot trust that God is good. We must come to a point where we can trust our Heavenly Father, not in spite of the events of our lives, but within the events of our lives. He loves us. He's good. So that's my first point. Stubbornly get to a point where you can trust that God is good in the face of the worst that the world can give us. He'll make sense of it someday. And if you can make sense of it earlier than that, great. But choose to trust that. Second point, consider God's attributes. Now, I'm going to talk about his, uh, I guess theologians call them the, the moral and non-moral attributes or the communicable and the incommunicable attributes. I'm going to deal with the incommunicable, the, the non-moral attributes. Or let me put it another way, the omnis. God is um, omnipre- omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do anything he wants to do, and anything he wants to do, he'll do. And nothing can stop that. He's <clears throat> omniscience. I know I didn't say that right, but that's the way I like to say it. It's omniscience, but um, that's how it's spelled, omniscience. It means all knowledge, or you guys say all-knowing, but I don't like thinking of it as all-knowing. Because all-knowing, it kind of gives me an idea that he's just some kind of cosmic computer that just makes a record of everything that's going on. He's totally aware of everything. It's more than that. He's totally understanding of everything. He's, inter- he's entirely smart. No physician is going to come up to him and say, have you ever heard of string theory? Whew, that's some complicated physics. Never figured that out. No, not, not my God. He's all smart. He's all smart. He understands the workings of everything, and he's involved with the workings of everything. And he's omnipresent, which means that he's everywhere all the time. Now, consider God's attributes as you try and consider contentment. Isolation and loneliness often battle with a spirit of thankfulness. You can begin to feel as nobody knows the troubles I've seen. There's a verse that if you spent much time with me, I go to often because it's been so helpful for me to figure this out in the context of a difficult world. And that's in Exodus 3. So you probably hear me talk about this verse in the future because it's, it's, it's been, it had a profound effect on me. But it's at the burning bush. You know the movie, right? Or the cartoon, depending on your generation. You know, you have the, the parting of the sea. It's a good movie. But anyway, it's the Moses story. He's at the burning bush. And God has this conversation. Toward the beginning of this conversation, he says these words. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them. Great. What a great and good God, right? And this verse always just filled me with hope and comfort. 
And I don't know why I never noticed it, but I guess about 10 years ago, I was reading through that, and I'd been teaching the life of Abraham, and Genesis 15 just kept going through my head. And I'd say, how does this make sense of Genesis 15? So let's look at Genesis 15 for a second. Then the Lord said to him, now this is, this is about 400 years before the burning bush, or more, and, um, and God is speaking to Abraham now, and he says, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. How, how long, someone tell me, how long are they going to be in Egypt? 400 years? How long are they going to mis- be mistreated and enslaved? 400 years? So, how many people were born in affliction and slavery? How many people died in affliction and slavery, never getting to see Exodus 3? That really hit me. So when I read Exodus 3 and he says, I've seen their misery. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. There's a lot of crying that never got answers, right? Still, <clears throat> still in the midst of this, I find comfort in knowing these four things from Exodus 3. God sees my misery, right? That's what it says in Exodus 3. He's totally aware. He's all seeing. <laughs> El Rai is the Hebrew for that. Secondly, He hears my prayers and cries. When I pray, it's not just going up and floating away into the sky somewhere. It's landing on the ears of our our sovereign God. Third, he cares about me and my circumstances. That's what it says. I'm concerned. I care about them. And fourthly, another promise from Exodus 3. God will respond to and make right all that has been done to me and by me. So, while it's true, I don't know what part of the story I'm in. I don't know what part of the story I am. Maybe I'm in the part of the story where my prayers don't get answered for me, but for the following generation. Maybe I'm at the story where I just pray and I pray and I pray. And God will answer. But I don't get to see that. Can you handle that? Sometimes I feel like it's hard for us to handle that. Can you handle a sovereign God who chooses to say... I hear your prayers, and I care. I'm not insensitive to them, and I'm going to answer them. And you may or may not get to see the answer. Can you handle that? Can you trust that kind of God? I've come to a point in my life where I feel like I can. I feel like it's okay. I still offer my prayers. I still cry out to God. I still seek his work in my life and in the life around me. But how he answers is up to him, right? God is sovereign. God's attributes. Or consider Romans 12. Start at verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you're having trouble seeing how that fits into this point, how do I approach those who do evil with good? How can I do that? 
because of Exodus 3. Because he sees, he cares. What did I say? <laughs> he sees, he hears, he cares, and he responds. He sees, he hears, he cares, he responds. He knows what's been done to me. He hears my cries. He cares, and he responds. So I can love my enemy, and I get too good to those who mistreat me because I leave it to the wrath of God to sort out the details. Right? Do I have more with point two? I can't remember. Yes, I have one more. No, I'll skip this. I'll skip this. I was going to talk a little bit about Richard Wormbrand. And by saying that, maybe that produces some curiosity. You could ask me about the quote later. But he's one who experienced that in his own life, about God being with him in some torture, literally torture, not figuratively, in a, in a Romanian jail. But he had to come to a point where he could trust God in those things. So number one, we need to consider God's goodness. Number two, we have to consider God's attributes. Number three, we have to consider what we deserve. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for what I deserve. Now, this isn't new information for you guys. I know it's not. I mean, we, we say it all the time. What did, what did he do on the cross? He paid the penalty for my sin. It's, it's just a common phrase that evangelical believers say. But do you ever, rest, do you ever let that rest on, on you? Do you ever patiently take the time to consider that what's happening on the cross should happen to me? That's what I deserve. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that you somehow you're more entitled than that? When we, when we consider what we deserve, are, are you ever amazed by the grace that God has allowed you to enjoy? Or, or do you feel somehow like you're more deserving than the faithful people of Hebrews 11? I mean, consider that. Read Hebrews 11 and tell me somehow, in and of yourself, you deserve more than what they, what they got. Let's look at it real quick. Some faced jeers and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. If I had to live in the circumstances that they lived in, would my faith stay intact? Would my view of God's goodness stay accurate and true? Or would I crumble? Would I even have a chance at coming close to making the list on Hebrews 11? Do I consider what I deserve? Jesus faced this question time and again in the Gospels. Whose sin caused this ailment? Whose sin brought this calamity? Whose sin is worse than another's? You guys have heard those if you've spent any time reading the Gospels. But in one particular place in Luke 13, Jesus gives a very pointed response that I I find very revealing to, to considering what I deserve. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all 
the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. This is not a question of what one deserves. See, they were trying to find out whose fault was it that they suffered that way. Because if I could find out what sins they committed that caused them to suffer that way, then I could just avoid those sins and I'd be better off than them because I'm better off than them. And listen how profoundly Jesus answered the question. You think that they suffered because they're worse than you. The truth is, you all should have been under that tower. The truth is, you all should have been under the, 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 um, the massacre from Pilate. The question isn't, did they deserve it? The question is, why did you get grace? But unless you repent, you'll all suffer the same. You see, you see how he worked that out? We don't deserve what we have. We don't deserve what we get. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. I find that very convicting. There's an illustration that my favorite pre- preacher, John Piper, gave when I was in college. And, um, and, and he points out this. He said that often when we evangelize, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we often sell Jesus like he's some sort of benefit to be taken advantage of. We sell Jesus like, like uh, I don't know, like anything we would market, like a pair of shoes or something. Come to Jesus. He'll make your marriage better. Come to Jesus. He'll help you with your financial problems. Come to Jesus. He'll make you a better dad. Come to Jesus. He'll help you get that promotion. It, it, it's not, is it not true that we hear Jesus talked about like that? And, 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 and the illustration goes like this. Suppose you're standing on a beach and you hear that a tidal wave is rushing towards you. And you have no time to get out of the way. It's going to crash down in maybe 20 minutes. It's moving 100 feet tall, 100 miles an hour. And someone comes up and stands next to you and says, I can get you out of the way of the tidal wave. What do you do? You cling to them, right? If you can get me out of the way of the tidal wave, then I want to be with you. We don't do this. So you say you can get me out of the way of the tidal wave. And when you do... Can you help me get a promotion as well? Because if not, I'd just soon stay here. Can you help me with my financial problems, my marital problems, my relationship problems? I mean, it's great and all that you can get me out of the way of the tidal wave. I mean, that's silly thinking, right? You cling to him. It doesn't matter. Yet we do that with Jesus. The wrath of God is coming. There's a, there's a, there's a consequence for sin. And Jesus says, I covered the consequence. You don't have to suffer the wrath of God. And we say, yeah, I really want this car. Can you help me with this car? What? Really? The wrath of God is coming and you want a car. Okay. That's the depth of what we, what we go to Jesus for. The wrath of God is coming and uh, we, don't, we don't rest. We don't let what, deserve, what we deserve rest on our shoulders. Because when we let what we, what we deserve rest on our shoulders, everything else is a blessing. Now, don't get me wrong when I talk about this. I think God does help us at times with our health, with our marriages, 
with our relationships. He helps guide us in our finances. I believe that he, he delights to get involved in all those areas of our lives. But do you understand that that is icing? That is icing. Just the fact that you're saved is enough. So a re- quick recap before I finish my last two points. So how do we get to a point where food and clothing is enough and we can have contentment in godliness? Well, first, by trusting God's goodness, which gives us a deeper view of the purposes behind my life's circumstances. Trust God's goodness. Secondly, realizing God's attributes, which gives us a broader picture in which to understand the greater story of God's salvation. And third, by admitting what we deserve, which turns every breath of air into a blessing to be thankful for. There's a sense in which we cannot find contentment. I'm sorry. That's what I get for reading my notes. I just skipped down like a whole paragraph. So that's the three. Let's go with the fourth one. The fourth one, discern the differences between worldly riches and true riches. Sometimes we have trouble being content because we can't tell the difference between worldly riches and true riches. When we feel that God is not blessing us as we think he should or how we feel he promises, consider what true riches are. One way we can tell we, get, we often get the idea of blessing and riches mixed up is when you compare Jesus' admonishment to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Two churches in particular, first Smyrna. This shows us that we get this mixed up at times. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Anybody in the day, would they call Smyrna rich? I'll just answer that for you in case you haven't done the the work to study 2,000 years ago Smyrna. They were poor. They were very poor by economic standards. And yet Jesus told them, you're rich. There's a difference between worldly riches and true riches. Or he goes on to the church in Laodicea and he says, You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Next one. That's okay. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So the Laodiceans were the opposite of the, of the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna was poor, and Jesus says, you, you don't realize it, but you're actually rich. And the church in Laodicea was rich. They were very rich, if you study that history. And Jesus says, you, you, you don't even understand your own poverty. So how do we know? How do we discern the difference between worldly riches and true riches? Because there's a sense in which we cannot find contentment. We cannot pray from a posture of thankfulness because we do not see riches the way Jesus does. You guys might be familiar with the rich young ruler story. It's, a, it's where Jesus encounters this wealthy young man. And it's in this conversation where Jesus tells the young man to sell everything he owns and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. The young man can't release himself from his wealth and turns away from Jesus. And Jesus comments with these famous words, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And at that, the disciples were confused. They were puzzled by this. They thought that wealth was a sign of God's approval and blessing. And look how Jesus responds to their confusion. 
in verse 26. The disciples were given, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, then, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter, I believe, I'm reading into this a little bit, but I believe Jesus, Peter is probably whining a little bit right here. But we've left everything to follow you. And listen how Jesus, I've heard it described as a gentle rebuke to Peter. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, Peter, get over your pity party. Yeah, you've left, you've left everything to follow me. But can you see the riches in front of you? Can you see the blessings that you have? It's possible that Jesus was telling Peter and the disciples something very similar to what he told the churches in Revelation. He may be saying, you guys cannot see the riches and blessing that is right before your eyes, not to mention the immeasurable blessing that is prepared in heaven. Personally, this is convicting. When I look at my home, my possessions, my access to health care and food, how can I say I'm not blessed? When I consider the family of God that cares for me, the promises of an eternal home where tears are wiped away, how can I say I'm not blessed? Consider also the widow that Jesus saw giving her offerings at the temple. He said, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Remember, we confuse worldly riches with true riches. Because look what he goes on to say. Truly, I tell you, <clears throat> this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. What would Dave Ramsey say about that? That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> kind of. <clears throat> We've got to stop viewing blessings through the lens the world gives us and start trusting Jesus' promises and perspective. Finally, remember I said five, so if you're counting, if you're note-takers, I'm on number five. Finally, how do we develop that heart of contentment that pours out into thankful prayers? Commune with God. For me, the best way to get over my covetousness, my selfishness, and my lack of gratitude is to meditate on Jesus and consider his beauty. Honestly, many of us do not have a beautiful picture of Jesus in our minds. I, I, you just, t just test yourself on this. Just test yourself on this. When you think about heaven, what are the first five things that come to mind? I tell you what, very often when I think about heaven, Jesus isn't on that top five list. You know, it's, it's the rooms of guitars. You know? It's the food. It's a feast, right? A wedding feast. It's the food. It's the relationships that aren't broken anymore. It's seeing the people that I've lost. Oh, that's good stuff. 
why doesn't Jesus get up to the top of that list? You know? And it's a shame. Some people have a view of heaven that Jesus' presence in heaven is, is irrelevant. If he's there or not, it doesn't matter. I get all this cool stuff. Is that really the, the picture that the Bible gives us? It's not the picture that the psalmist wrote about. Listen to um, Psalm 27. One thing, one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You get a picture of Jesus like that, and you can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. This body they can kill. God's truth endureth still. will reign forever. You get a picture of Jesus like that, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim, and we'll have joy and gratitude. Or Psalm 90, And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Have you seen the beauty of Christ? Let me recap, and then I want to end with a group reading here. You want to develop a heart of contentment in probably more ways than the five that I said. But these are just five that I'm trying to help you with. All right? Consider and lock on to the goodness of God. God is good. Second, consider his attributes, that he is sovereign over all things, that he sees and hears and cares and responds. Third, consider what we deserve. That's a hard one. Fourth, oh, they're right there. (laughs) I'm forgetting them, trying to remember them. Thank you, Lynn. Fourth, discern the difference between worldly riches and true riches. See it as icing and everything is something to be thankful. And fifth, commune with God and his beauty. Let this be our prayer. In fact, what I'd like to do as a prayer together, we'd like to read a portion of Philippians 4. We'll stand together and we can treat this as a benediction and I'll dismiss you. Let's read Philippians 4, and let this be our prayer as we dismiss today. Amen? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving... Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Meditate on these things. Pray thankfully this week.